Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Neot Rewind podcast on war and violence. My name is Laurien Fastenhout. I am researcher at the Neot and I will be your guest host for today. I am very pleased that Dr. Anna Heikova, based at the University of Warwick, has agreed to talk in this episode about her landmark work, The Last Ghetto, an everyday history of Thracianstadt. It's a must-read not only for everyone interested in daily life inside the ghetto during the Holocaust, but also for those interested in interhuman relations in times of crisis. Welcome, Anna. Uh, I will now hand over to my co-host, Anna van Maurik. Yes, hello, everybody. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you all today. And uh, Laurine and I are thrilled to have Dr. Anna Heikova here with us. As Laurine mentioned, we will be discussing your new book, the Last Ghetto, an Everyday History of Theresienstadt. Uh, but before doing so, could you please introduce yourself? Uh, goeiedag. Um, I'm thrilled to be in Mokum. Thank you so much for having me. I am a historian of the Jewish history of the Holocaust. Um, I look at the victims' histories. And as you said, I wrote this book uh, about Theresienstadt, about Theresien, a place where Central European and Western European Jews were deported. Uh, I am Czech and I'm British and I'm associate professor uh, at the University of Warwick in England. And my current work is on history of sexuality, transgressive sexuality, queerness. It's very meaningful for me to be in Amsterdam, not least because, of course, you have the Homo Monument, one of the very first memorials for the LGBT victims of uh, Nazi Germany here, next to Anne Frank's house. Yes. And I've also worked <laughs> about the queer traces in Anne Frank's diary. Oh, really? Yes. So Anna, about the book, please tell us, uh, what sets your study of victim society apart from those who came before? Mm -hmm. I wrote my book as basically two lines. It's a history of Theresienstadt, it's a new modern history of Theresien, but it's also a case study of human experiences in extremists. And when you look at kind of the classical studies, whether it's Philip Friedman or Emanuel Ringelblum uh, or, you know, the many, many others, often these histories kind of continue thinking in the normative expectations of the victims and of survivors. Uh, they often judge um, the Jewish councils, of course, as Laurin Fasnahot has uh, very nicely analyzed. Um, and they also continue this kind of certain stigmatization of sexuality, of decision-taking. And they write these books in a way to confirm their old perceptions. And then you have the new histories. And now, since I am, of course, implicitly critical of these studies, so I will uh, be so free as not to name names. But often these new histories are fairly descriptive. They um, are positivist rather than being analytical. They describe the everyday, what people ate, what they did, but they do not ask the very crucial question, what did it mean? I really very much believe that the task of a scholar of the Holocaust is to analyze, to understand, to study. And when we see that uh, people decide to join each other on transport, when they take the decision where to eat, when they decide to start in shut fashion, when women barter the last of their bread for lipstick, it has a meaning and it's my job to analyze that. So here I apply the thick description of Clifford Gretz for Holocaust history and I continue here on earlier work on Holocaust subjectivities by people such as Alexander Gabarini in her beautiful book, The Numbered Days. So, Anna, I would like to turn to some misconceptions mm -hmm. that you address in your book. Mm -hmm. The title of the introduction of your book, I think, is a very fitting one. Mm -hmm. It's the well-known, poorly understood ghetto. Mm -hmm. 
What do you think are the greatest misconceptions that still exist in both the academic sphere and the public sphere about uh, Theresienstadt? And maybe you can also say something about um, why you refer to Theresienstadt as a ghetto mm -hmm. rather than as a concentration camp. There are so many misconceptions about Theresienstadt and in a way people are very attached to these conspiracies. And I'm like the person who comes and says, Christmas does not exist and sometimes people get angry and take it out on me personally. But I think these conspiracies are not very uh, constructive in our understanding of this enforced society. So of course you have these expectations about the Nazi propaganda film and about the Red Cross visit, which of course took place, but how important they were for the everyday experience of the prisoners has been a little bit outside. So one of the first things I usually do in my talks is yes, of course, this is something that from the outside is very important, but for the experiences and for the everyday life of the victims, it has been relatively minimal. And our job, not least the ethical job for us as eight years later, is to try to understand the experiences of the victims and not to look at the perpetrators. Now, we three know that uh, so much of Holocaust history has focused on the perpetrators. After all, the perpetrators did something out of the ordinary. They murdered, and they murdered in large scale. But analytically, I always found it much more fascinating to see how people behave in extremists. And of course, the last six or seven years since the election of Trump, we have seen the rise of right-wing populism and anti-Semitism around the world. So the human behavior and coming to terms and adaptation under extremists is extremely timely topic. I think very much thinking about Theresienstadt is a kind of case study of understanding victim society. Then, next, you have the stories about cultural life, and sometimes people expect that in particular artists and writers and drama people were deported to Theresienstadt. That is not the case. Everybody was deported to Theresienstadt from the occupied protectorate Bohemia and Moravia, from what today would be the Czech Republic, and then smaller groups from Germany, the Netherlands, uh, Austria, Hungary and Slovakia. Because everybody was deported, you have a certain proportion of the Jewish population who are artists. And in a way, what I try to show is that human demand for culture is an anthropological constant. People do arts to feel better about themselves. It's a meaningful way to spend spare time, but it's also a way to show their spirit and the intellectual continuity. For me, it was very meaningful last year when the war in Ukraine, when the Russian attack in Ukraine started. I remember reading the New York Times coverage about the musician staging Mozart's Requiem in Lviv. And I remember reading it and uh, tears falling down my face because I thought exactly what the people in Theresienstadt were thinking and how incredibly meaningful uh, music and classical music and showing that you are a thinking, uh, active, intellectual creature, even if the Russians or the Germans are trying to destroy you. Then you have the stories about children. I think everybody has heard the story that only 100 children survived Theresienstadt. And that is actually a statistical misunderstanding. We know that um, after the war, one of the youth care leaders, Willy Groak, wrote that from the children who were sent to the east, to Auschwitz, to uh, Lublin district and so on, only 100 survived. Now, even here, Willy Groak was not accurate. When you look at children defined at the age of 15, at the point of deportation, something like 230 uh, survived. But when you look at the children liberated in Theresienstadt, about 2,000 survived. So that also applies for the Dutch, say, on back and the kinder and the unknown children and so on. Still, it is a fraction of the children who were deported to Theresienstadt. But why do we have this kind of occurrence of the false numbers? 
in a way, it again puts the Rezinchet into a conspiracy and puts kind of this number apart as the children who survived are particularly special. And I've spent a fair bit of time clarifying this misunderstanding. Historians before me, like Miroslav Karni and Margita Karna, who themselves um, met in Theresienstadt and became historians of Theresienstadt, spent a lot of time clarifying this misunderstanding. It is a bit frustrating when I see often quite important, significant Holocaust memoirs around the world uh, writing these false numbers and not responding to my email. So I'm pleased to have the opportunity to set the record straight. Because at the end of the day, if people claim that only 100 children survived Theresienstadt, then they're retrospectively basically killing off uh, 2,000 people, and that's very violent. Larino already mentioned it, but the idea of Theresienstadt being a concentration camp, that's also a misconception, right? Yes, and I, I, I apologize, I got carried away and did not answer the question, but it was no it is a long <laughs> question. So, um, Theresienstadt was a ghetto, the Nazis called it a ghetto. It did not fall under the Wirtschaftsverwaltung Hauptamt that supervised the concentration camps or the inspection the Konzentrationslader, inspection of the concentration camps, it fell under the 4 before of Eichmann's office in Reich Security Main Office and the Zentralstelle für Jüdische Auswanderung. So somewhere in the book I have this kind of organizational sketch how Theresienstadt falls into it. And the important thing is that until 43 the Nazis call it the ghetto and the Jews call it the ghetto and afterwards with the beautification program it's called a Jewish settlement area. Why do we have the name concentration camp? And that is very much linked to the post-war histories of anti-fascist resistance that people like Emma Kubi and Yuvari Aundula and David House have analyzed. After the war, it was the political survivors who really shaped the post-war narratives about authentic suffering. And these people went to concentration camps. They went to, they were deported to Ravensbrück and Dachau and so on. And of course, when you look, say, at the histories of the Dutchmen who were sent to Neuengamme, that's a moment of extreme suffering and almost universal death. And so few Jews survived. Also, the Jewish narrative in the late 40s and the 50s were not part of the mainstream, that concentration camps kind of became the site of the universal suffering. So if you were a Jewish survivor and you wanted to have your narrative known, you refashioned Theresienstadt into a concentration camp. You also had a significant number of communist Jewish survivors, like people like Miroslav Karni, who were members of the communist underground political unit in Theresienstadt, who very much felt that everybody was in Theresienstadt because they were Jewish, but he was a communist. And to kind of making your experience known and to glean something meaningful out of the horrible experience of imprisonment, you have for the communists, you have it for the Jewish functionaries, you have it for the physicians, to kind of prove your status and to glean something meaningful of the incarceration is very, very meaningful. But Theresienstadt indeed was a ghetto and we have this very important encyclopedia of uh, Nazi ghettos uh, edited by Martin Dean and others. And the point here is ghettos were places of immense suffering and it is important to return them into our history. They just had very few survivors and these narratives of these survivors did not make it into the mainstream, but um, it is an instrumentalized and politicized history, albeit an understandable one, to refashion, you know, Warsaw into a camp, Theresienstadt into a camp, and so on. Yeah, thank you. If, if I may ask yeah, a sure. very short follow-up <laughs> question, because what struck me when I was reading your book is that you do refer to the people who are interned in the mm -hmm. ghetto as prisoners. So is that 
like self-identification of these people? Is that the terminology the Germans used? And because I would assume prisoners is more related to the concentration camp, in a um, sense. I think any place, any, any total institution has its inmates. Um, and here I built on Erwin Goffman and I found it very interesting how anybody who is imprisoned or is, 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 is in place of a total institution starts um, developing certain modes of conduct, whether it's a priest in a monastery, whether it's prison, prisoners in a prison, uh, whether it's uh, people in a mental institution, uh, or whether it's people in a camp or a ghetto. Uh, but in particular, um, this was a stylistic choice that I speak about people, I speak about inmates, I speak about prisoners. I remember you talking about uh, this topic years ago with Eric Steinhardt at USHMM, who was working about the ethnic Germans and the Holocaust in the Soviet Union. And he said, Anna, I sometimes say Volksdeutsch and sometimes say ethnic Germans, so that it's just stylistically the text is not always the same. But similarly, I say ghetto, Theresienstadt and Theresien are a synonym, so that simply uh, in text it is not too bland. You just mentioned something which I found you beautifully uh, voiced. Uh, you said uh, human demand for culture, and I thought that's, that's nicely put. Um, and that brings me to the follow-up question of, uh, do you perhaps have a telling example of what a prison society in which perhaps a human demand for culture was very present, uh, how, how did this look like? And um, you write about prisoners creating their own culture and habits. Some people started dating mm -hmm. uh, or forged new families. Mm -hmm. Please tell us about this. Mm -hmm. This is the really interesting moment how people who are sent there and they are terrified and they are individuals and they do not know each other, how from these people, from these ends, emerges a society. Um, and that is, I guess, the key thing that I, the story that I tell in the book, how uh, people are terrified and they find solace in each other and they talk and they try to make sense of the surrounding, they try to appropriate it, um, they go around and explore, and it's also trial and error, also pushing back at the Germans, and Germans pushing back at them. So the most important moment of violence, uh, and the only like pretty much the only moment of physical violence, are the executions in Winter 42, when uh, Germans execute, I think, 16 young men for something that are kind of arbitrary midst up. But the main message of the Germans is to show that they are masters and they can kill people. Afterwards, you don't have executions of torture, or people are caught, you know, smuggling or smuggling cigarettes, uh, but not necessarily executions. The main place of violence is, of course, uh, in the East, where people are deported and la later uh, murdered. And um, you see how people at first are terrified, and they talk with the people in the new accommodations, because you have these new accommodations, they talk to people in the food lines, and they talk to people in the work groups units. Everybody has to pass through um, work unit, the hundred shaft of hundred hours of labor. Sometimes if they are kind of highly trained, say as physicians or as architects, they're immediately sent to the corresponding units. And here you see that this kind of moment of terror passes to making friends and finding out how works what and becoming part of this new collective is remarkably quick. And even for the older people who don't speak Czech, and that will be the older people from Germany and Austria, even they start adapting after two or three weeks. Alexander Garbarini 
called this the epistemological gap, how people arrive to today's internet and if they write a diary or write letters to their friends back home, they try to explain what is unknown and what is terrifying and what is strange, but they get used to the unknown and terrifying and strange, and then they cannot report about it anymore. Think about the pandemic, how in the beginning everything was absolutely strange, and then you got used to standing in line in front of the supermarket. In the UK, we got used to not having any flour for three months. My Czech friends did not want to believe me when I told them that there was no flour and I had to go to Waitrose and take a picture of the empty shelf. And I got used to cooking with rice flour, even though it was not a very positive experience. <laughs> and something similar applies to today's Instead too. And then, you know, how you court, how you decide whether to have sex, um, what language do you speak, what do you do in your spare time when you cannot go to the cinema, when you uh, cannot go out for dinner, when you cannot listen to radio, when you cannot read to the newspaper. Um, a lot of things change and people adapt to new moments. So I talked about how important it was for especially younger Czech women to appear uh, welcomed and beautifully put together. And lipsticks um, became immensely important. Uh, it kind of became what, what I think six years ago became contouring in makeup. So lipstick is immensely important and people will go hungry just that they can have red lips. And then you see the arriving Dutch and German Jews. Um, I remember there's this nurse of German background who emigrated to the Netherlands, uh, Ilse, who barters the lipstick that she bought abroad from Westerbock for bread because she's hungry and it's not so important for her to be made up. But yet later uh, you have another woman coming from a mixed marriage in the winter. Uh, 45 and her uh, husband sent her um, a little a vial of perfume and all of her colleagues wear the perfume and she says even the gray old ladies whose eyes were almost blind started shining in joy because it kind of gave them a sense of humanity and mm -hmm. here you see how the gendered expression is incredibly linked to people's sense of self-value. So you, uh, I, I think also history of sexuality is incredibly fruitful line of inquiry for our understanding of any society, in particular of the Holocaust. So who goes out with whom, what partner is then introduced to uh, the friends and who, what partner is just, um, so to say, hookup is quite important. So it is the younger Czech Jews, the younger men, who are the social elite of the ghetto, who work as butchers and cooks and as architects, and they have the best access to food. They are also protected from transport. And with that, they are sought after uh, partners, and they also use their status to be sexually active, not necessarily because the sexual drive is so high, but also because it's a proof of status. And it's very interesting who are the partners with whom they settle on, and who are the women that they have sex with. Um, and it's often foreign women who sell sex uh, to support their families. And these are histories that you often find in testimonies, but that have not been written about at all, not for Theresienstadt and not for other ghettos. And I think it is important to not see sexuality as a kind of titillating topic, but as a very meaningful moment when we can find out something about the new values and new habits that emerge. Uh, in, in this horrible incarcerated place. Yeah, so what is so striking about your answers during this, this, this podcast, but also the things that you write about in your book is the parallels that you draw also mm -hmm. with day-to-day -day society nowadays with the COVID pandemic. And what is so good about your book, I think, is 
indeed that it is not just the study of Theresienstadt. Uh, it is also a study of everyday life, society in extremis, as you just said as well. In that regard, I had a question about the importance of family ties and kinship mm -hmm. units mm -hmm. during crisis. Because in my own work, I, I did come across sociologists who claim that in times of crisis, people return to their core families. Mm -hmm. um, there are other scholars who claim that people in need actually seek those they do not feel emotionally attached to. And you write quite extensively about the importance of the core family, but also kinship ties, uh, the decisions people made indeed in terms of with whom they wanted to share their apartments or their food with, new social units that were formed inside the, the ghetto. Based on your research, what would be your perception on uh, kinship units and family ties and perhaps how these are redefined in times of crisis in general, but also in, in the case of Theresienstadt? This is a big question and I think here your new project Laurin is very, very promising. The Chemeng Trahuvden, the mixed marriages, are a bit the canary in the coal mine. And I mean, I have spoken about the fact uh, that my grandfather survived uh, as a so-called Mischling. Uh, his parents were in a mixed marriage. It is also very meaningful for the history of the post-war when the post-war Jewish communities and the post-war Jews are the Jews who survived thusly if the marriages did not fall apart because the Rezinshat is full of Czech Jews who were divorced from their Gentile partners. And we know from Beate Meyer's work about mixed marriages uh, that a family could be a place of violence and of oppression and that uh, when the war arrives in your living room, not everybody manages to deal with it so well. And that's just natural. So I think it's quite important to work here inductively and not deductively. And of course, I have read many uh, sociological and anthropological studies about kinship and about family and whatnot. But for me, what I try to do in the book is not necessarily go there inspired by a bunch of theories and find a confirmation in the study, but rather to say, here I have a case study of society in extremis. What patterns can I glean out of it? And how can I reintroduce them to other sociological, anthropological and historical theories? So it would be very interesting what you will find, Laurin, uh, in, your, in your comparative study about uh, family and domestic violence and um, withstanding pressure and not withstanding the pressure. Because um, in a way there are so many expectations, uh, not least because a significant part of the histories about mixed marriages are about their children. And it is just normatively impossible to say that the marriage of my parents was bad. It is very, very hard. Uh, and in a way, I am, in quotation marks, lucky that the marriage of my great-grandparents ended in death. Uh, my great-grandmother committed suicide um, when she saw what is coming. That meant that her husband was deported, but she saved her children. I don't want to know how it would be if it were otherwise, uh, because these are very difficult situations. On that note, what was inspiring for me as I was writing was to simply see what, who are the important people as people narrate they stay in Theresienstadt. Sometimes it's the core biological family, sometimes it's the political group, sometimes it's the friends from the accommodation. And then you can make a couple of calls how to define, how to express your proximity to them, uh, your kinship. And here I find kinship, and here I would actually have an 
other conceptual stance after not having it about prisoners, that kinship is a concept that does not express a biological proximity, whereas mm. family is mm. always biological. And here afterwards, um, I kind of expanded on that work in my, in my book, People Without History Are Dust, uh, where I show how queer desire in the camps can surpass biological ties and people choose their kinship unit based on the queer desire and not necessarily on the biological unit, people who decide with who to go on transport. Here I expand on my early work on Theresienstadt. So you, you have the choices. The one spare time you have is in the evening with whom are you going to eat your dinner? Are you going to eat it with your friends? Are you going to eat it in your accommodation? Are you going to go to your mom? Are you going to your lover? Are you going to tell to your lover to go to you? And so on. Is it about accommodation? Do you want to stay next to your parents? Do you want to maybe organize, if you are privileged, a kumbal, a cabihol with your lover somewhere in, um, in the attic? And then it will be also the deportation to the east, because up to one point in October 44, majority of the transports are put together by Jewish self-administration, and people can report with whoever they want to go with. And um, I spent a lot of time analyzing the petitions to be taken out of transport, but also petitions to volunteer to go on the transport, the Ausleihungsanträge. And here you see how people in these extreme moments make the decision with who I want to go. And rather than coerced decisions, I see these decisions as meaningful decisions. Not necessarily they were successful, but to take victims' agency seriously is, I guess, the last point that I want to come to in our thinking about kinship. Uh, and also to kind of dare to take the sources for what they say and not reading our normative biologizing expectations about the fact that the family is the two parents and the two children. It can have lots of forms. And Holocaust, terrible as it was, kind of opens our eyes to what society does to kinship units. Yeah, I think what is very worthwhile maybe to mention is that in your book you highlight a lot of personal stories as well. And one story that came to mind when you were just talking is that of Ludek Eckstein, who was a young communist actor. And at some point you write very uh, movingly that he is forced to choose who he will accompany on, on a transport, either his brother or his communist girlfriend. Can you maybe shortly reflect on his story? Or um, it's a beautiful story because Eckstein, uh, a member of the communist group, was also an actor. And uh, the story is so meaningful because he tells it and he reenacts it. He has this beautiful voice like um, uh, Dark Honey. And uh, you are completely captivated listening to it. And I owe it to my friend Martin Schmock uh, of the Visual History Archive, who drew my attention to, to his work on eyewitness. Uh, to do that. And the story that Eckstein says is that in May 44, his brother is set on transport and his girlfriend is set on transport, so he volunteers to go with them. And eventually the Communist Party organization is able to exempt the girlfriend. And now he's like, will he stay with the girlfriend or will he go with the brother? And his parents want him to go with the brother because the brother is sickly. And he talks to his older friend, the actor and mentor Gustav Schorsch, and Schorsch says like, there will be a moment in your life when it will basically show what kind of guy you are. Like, are you a failure or are you not a failure? And he goes to transport to show that he has the moral fortitude. And of course, you see a very normative expectation. Mm -hmm. And because he's such a powerful narrator, he's an actor, 
you kind of follow that. And I try to show there is more to the story than just this normative expectation that there is something good to be gleaned out of being of transport, that you show that you are not like a moral failure. Because he did not have a choice of going to transport. Eventually he would have been deported anyways, but he has the narrative choice. And this is where he shows how meaningful the agency was for him and that he could do the right call. And you also see the important moment of emplotment that Hayden White really showed that history always emplots, always tells stories. And you kind of see the moment of narrative testimony. Uh, some of the most interesting current research in Holocaust studies is exactly about testimony per se, well, like kind of testimony as a historical actor, how people bear testimony, what is narrated, what is not narrated. And that is my contribution to the field by people like Lisa Lev, um, or Alexander Garbarini, that we need to pay attention not necessarily to the facts in the testimony, but how is the testimony told? How does humor and emotions work? What metaphors are people using? And of course, I love Ludwig Eckstein, um, but at the end of the day, and we were just talking about it with Laurin yesterday, you have a very, very powerful narrator in your very own Jacques Pressa. And in his mic drop moment in June 43, when he's so angry at Asha and Cohen, that they put a whole lot of their friends to go to Westerbork and they stayed behind. Usher and Cohen being the chairman of the Dutch Jewish Council. Yes. Um, and in a way, I think the point has arrived for us not to judge, but to see how in terms of discourse, the judging is done. Yeah, so this story about Eckstein and, and the answer that you just um, gave reminded me of another very important theme in your book. And you already shortly addressed it, which is agency. So a very powerful argument uh, that you make in the book is that as Holocaust scholars, we should give back agency to the people that we study, um, choosing with whom to share food with, volunteering for transport, as we just talked about, or uh, working one's way up in the ghetto are all situations that very much show that people had actually room to make choices. And you reflect on that very carefully in the book. Um, could you maybe elaborate a bit on this and perhaps explain how this argument would take shape in different contexts, for example, that of the Jewish councils or the Zonderkommando? I would not necessarily speak about the Zonderkommando, but it's very meaningful for the Jewish council. So, of course, we have here uh, Lawrence Langer and mm -hmm. Choiceless Choices, where he argued that because the choices uh, of the Holocaust victims are so coerced, as he said, stripped of dignity, we should not engage with them. And I disagree with him. I build here on the work of people like Eliana Adler, where we argue that if we want to understand the experience of the victims, we need to engage with their decisions. And uh, the first thing that I need to clarify is that we should not be looking whether people were successful in surviving in order to grasp agency, but rather what they see as meaningful decisions and how they position themselves there. In a way, our lives are full of decisions that are not great decisions. Will you take this bad job or will you take that bad job? Will you live in this not great housing or will you live in the other not great housing? Will you stay in this relationship that is happy-ish or will you be single and lonely? So we are very familiar with these very circumvented decisions. And in a way, the mentality of saying that Holocaust victims did not have meaningful choices 
is a narrative plot so that we see, feel safe about the lives we live in. But if something the last 10 years of having a job at the British Academy have taught me is the very minimally way we have. And I think therefore it's important to face that of course the Holocaust is about life and death and you know, my decision taking is much more banal, but we should kind of lift the differentiation between them in the Holocaust and us, everything is a society. The research on Jewish councils from Dan Diner, Doron Rabinovich, Beate Maya, uh, your own work, Laurine, at my work, really forefronted how Jewish functionaries take administration bureaucracy incredibly seriously because they are often full-time bureaucrats, they are full-time uh, administrators. So they fight the Holocaust the best they can. They fight it through papers and lists and decision-taking and committees and, of course, the infamous minutes of the Yotzerat here. And rather than saying, that this was a dumb decision, we need to understand how they approach the problem, how they tried to solve it. Like, you really put Laurie in paper as the protagonist mm. into our understanding of the Jewish councils. So uh, that would be my decision, that for, for Therese Chat I was able to analyze these three areas of decision-taking as particularly meaningful. Where do you, with whom do you share food? with whom do you share accommodation and with who you do go on transport. I should also say, I set out to critique choiceless choices because I very much was invested in it. And then something happened exactly a year ago, namely that um, Lawrence Langer, one of the most important Holocaust historians, reviewed my book and he did it very, very generously. So I'm also very indebted to him and I have to tip my head off to somebody who, who is able to write such a generous and positive review of my book even though I was so critical of him. So I think it is really great class of Lawrence Langer and I, 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 I'm, I'm a fan. Good, I think you make a very good point about the fact that agency is not about survival. I think mm -hmm. as historians, as Holocaust historians, but maybe more broadly Holocaust and genocide historians or historians in general, that's something we should definitely uh, take into consideration when we do our research. Yeah, I agree. Um, the topic of food, popped up in our interview already a couple of times. So information being passed in the food lines you mentioned, mm -hmm. and you mentioned some people had more access to food than others. And with whom are you going to eat your dinner? So hunger and food is a central theme in your book. As I'm doing research to hunger myself, I'm obviously very interested in this topic. Mm -hmm. How did you conceptualize hunger for your work? Mm -hmm. Hunger is something that is everywhere in Holocaust studies and food is something that is everywhere in modern history and yet, or in any history, and yet so few people have taken food and hunger at face value and asked what it means, similarly to agency and sexuality. And that is really the challenge for historians of everyday life to kind of stop at these small things. And I decided to structure the book into the chapters SR as kind of the topics that emerge as particularly important for structuring the everyday uh, of the prisoners. And on food, I would say two things. First one is hunger, starvation and famine. And the first things that came to my mind was that you have incredible differences in mortality of Theresienstadt. Pretty much everybody who is above 65 years of age dies in Theresienstadt. And people who are younger than 60 or 65 Pretty much everybody, as long as they stay in Theresienstadt, lives. The survival is something like 95 or 90%. So you have a big, big divide. Why is that? 
because um, there is a triage of food rations that the Jewish self-administration introduced and the elderly no longer have to work and non-workers get very, very minimal food rations and the food is the least nutritious and the least heterogeneous. So they eat almost only carbohydrates. Uh, there is very little fat, there is no protein, there is no vitamins and they get infected very quickly with enteritis. Uh, their immunity system is weakened by the starvation and they die within 100 days. So that's one of the things that I really had a cold hard look because I thought we owe it to these old people to write about how they died. Of course, it is the Germans who decided there will not be enough food in Theresienstadt, but the decision about the triage comes from the Jewish self-administration, who is even proud of the decision, or who, uh, or no, not proud, but who really think that this is an ethical decision. And I would not be so loud about that, because this is a moment of uh, a famine of a generation of Austrian and German and Dutch and Czech Jews who literally die in their own excrement. And everybody in Theresienstadt becomes infected with, with uh, stomach flu, with enteritis, uh, but it's the elderly who are weakened, who have weak heart, who die in it. And if they don't die immediately, these people scavenge for food, they try to get parcels from their friends from Germany and from uh, the protectorate, they go through the food rubbish and if they are mentioned in the narratives of the younger Czech Jews, it's the kind of frustrating elderly who beg for food. They do not see it as a fight for survival. And I really kind of try to give uh, the elderly a moment in their history and to say what we owe them at the very least is the history of, 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 of how they did, how they died and how they tried to live on. And it's, by the way, the elderly that if they survive often bear the first testimony about Theresienstadt as they live in the old people's homes or in the DP camps. And then two, three years later, they die because I followed up in the stories. I did much more research than didn't get it into the book because I focused kind of on the narrative line. I wanted the book to be accessible also for the second and third generation. I wanted people like my cousins or my parents to read the book. And then I also write about how these formerly middle-class people for whom food was very much kind of expression of the class. They would eat oranges and pineapples and lobs. Well, also this is the moment of, of a reminder how assimilated middle uh, century European Jews were. So they did eat pork and they it, did eat lobster because they were wealthy and for them it was a proof of their status. Um, and then in Theresienstadt they eat foodstuffs that otherwise would be poor people's farmers food like plums and pears. And that suddenly is a luxury how you express status and that you like someone. There is the story of Elze Dormitza, who um, lived in Nuremberg, emigrated to the Netherlands, I believe to Hilversum, and eventually made her way to Theresienstadt, where she meets her old friend and acquaintance, the grand leader of a German reform jury, Leo Beck. And Leo Beck, to show her that he recognizes her as her own, sends her um, Rosinenbrot, a bread with raisins. And she recalls it not necessarily because it was a very meaningful snack when you are starving, but it was a recognition that she's a part of her social circles and a status. So we need to kind of say that really return food into history and uh, think about the significance that it had. And that those are some of the stories that I tell. Um, Anna, you also mentioned already that you use testimonies. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about the other sources you used. Uh, please tell us about them. And more specifically, I'm curious about how you've dealt with what is not said in these sources. 
I looked at everything. I went to the, all the archives and I looked at all the Theresienstadt relevant collections. I looked at diaries, at the letters, at the drawings, at the court testimonies, at the old histories, um, at the published memoirs. I looked at the many, many documents of the Jewish self-administration that is scattered between Israel and the Czech Republic. Because I knew that there are these kind of established stories about Theresienstadt that I wanted to surprise them and for them I needed to see the totality. There I also saw who bore a lot of testimonies, say the young Czech Zionist and, uh, you know, uh, assimilated uh, survivors and whose testimonies are missing. And I realized we have almost no diaries of Austrian Jews in Theresienstadt. And when you then kind of have these things together, you can be struck that you have this very tragic moment of the death of thousands and thousands of older Jews from the protectorate from Germany and from Austria. And yet the younger Czech Jews, the social elite, barely mentions that and then you can put it together. We know that you always have in history people who engage in same-sex desire and yet it is barely mentioned and if it is mentioned then you have moments like Ruth Bondi who herself survived Theresienstadt and then uh, became a very important historian who edited Gondar Redli's diary, the head of the uh, children's care, and removed his homophobic statements. So those are the bits that the history needs to kind of stumble upon and think about what it means. Thank you so much, Anna, for sharing these important insights. I really feel that we could continue this conversation for uh, hours, but we might lose so much to listeners. <laughs> I'm sorry. I do encourage all the listeners to read your book because you do address so many important themes that are relevant to the field of Holocaust and genocide studies, but also beyond that, as you've very clearly uh, highlighted uh, in, in our conversation today. So thank you again, Anna, and also thank you, Anna, for uh, asking me to co-host this podcast. Well, thank you. Hartstikke bedankt. Julia, hartstikke bedankt.